Your life can be full of inspiration and magic, and you don't need glass slippers to get there. Welcome to the podcast for real life heroines with author, speaker, and coach, Susanna Liller. Join us as we work with key elements of personal development to assist you in hearing the calls that life has for you. Be inspired, be empowered, and be encouraged. Let's start today's episode with your host, Susanna Liller. Hi, everyone. I would like to welcome you to this episode of my podcast, the podcast for real life heroines, where I get to interview women who have been on the heroine's journey, who have answered a call that is bigger than they are, that calls them to a wider arena. And in answering that call, they become bigger, they evolve and they grow. And that's what the heroine's journey is all about. Answering the call, leaving your comfort zone, bravery and courage is involved. And you're really gonna see that. Oh my gosh, you're gonna see it in this episode today. You're going to hear it or see it, depending on how you're listening with Catherine Ann Wilson. And Catherine Ann, Welcome. I'm so pleased to have you here with me. It is an honor. I really appreciate being invited. There's so many of us survivors out in the world. And I know that the more we say, me too, and, and share our stories, um, that unification energetically is just a game changer. So what a, what a thrill. Thank you. And I've been following your work. So I, I just... It's an honor to, to be here. And I feel like I've made a friend. <laughs> you have so made a friend, totally made a friend. So I want to read a little bit from your website just to introduce you to people. And, and then I'll ask you to elaborate on anything if I've left out some important details, but sort of the basics. And your website is, why don't you just say that? Because I don't have it right written down here. StopTraffickingUS.org. StopTraffickingUS, as in Sam.org. Great. Okay, so the mission on your website is to educate the public that one in five children are sexually abused. And I'm pausing to take that in for people to take that in. One in five children sexually abused. That abuse of children is the precursor and you're gonna say a bit about this, I think, to sex trafficking, addiction, incarceration, and more. Our goal, your goal, Catherine Ann, is to prevent this trauma and the domino effect of social ills through effective teaching and training. Our vision is to stop the sexual abuse of children. And your little bio here, let me read this. Catherine survived nearly 20 years of early childhood abuse, molestation, bullying, rape, runaway from 12 to 17, and sex trafficking. And just to even read that and look at you. Yeah, that's big. Then 20 years of what Catherine calls surviving the surviving. So the PTSD and all right. of that. 
tenacious self-help, personal growth, and ongoing healing through many different kinds of healing modalities. Now nearly 20 years of a life that Catherine says has been beyond her wildest dreams. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so people might find that hard to believe. Yeah. Several years ago, Catherine started the 501c3 nonprofit Stop Trafficking US. This was born out of an inner calling. So right there on your website, you're talking about your calling, an inner calling to do everything she could to prevent other children from going through what she did, also to offer help to victims that they too can heal and thrive. Over the last six years, she has done exactly that. A highly respected visionary, creating effective, efficient ways of educating individuals, families, communities, and states. So both of us live in Maine, and you said to me, and it's on the website, that one of the biggest questions you get asked is, is child sexual assault really, and sex trafficking really happening in the state of Maine? And how do you answer people when they ask you that? I ask them if there are human beings living here. <laughs> because wherever human beings are, drugs are being sold. Wherever human beings are, children are being sold. It's just, um, Everywhere in the world, wherever there are human beings, there is the inclination to be heterosexual, to be bisexual, to be homosexual, to be asexual, to be sexually attracted to children. And it could be young children, it could be uh, pre-adolescent children, it could be just uh, um, um, young boys or just young girls or boys and girls. 95% of the population are not sexually attracted to children, but the 5% who are leave a wake of devastation that is just maddening. You know, the average amount of sexual assaults, a, I will use the word offender and predator sort of back and forth, really depends on who you're talking to. Some people um, in the world or realm of um, sex trafficking and child sexual abuse prevention don't like the word predator. Um, they prefer offender. So I might go back and forth, So that, just so you know. Um, but the average assault of uh, the assaults, number of assaults of an offender would be around 150. Um, so 150 for each offender of that 5%, you know, one in four girls, one in six boys equates to one in five children. Some people are blown away by that. Remember Huffington Post uh, maybe four years ago saying that child sexual abuse was a pandemic. Huh. And I would agree. And there are people who say, no, it's one in 10 children. And other people say, no, it's half of the, you know, it's one in two. Um, and I say, if there's one, it is too many. But the general consensus is everybody feels, in my world, feels safe saying one in five children. So if you can imagine wherever there's a bunch of children on the playground or a particular camp or summer camp or event, and you look around at the children and you say, oh my gosh, I can't even... Now, yes, it's true. 
Sometimes it is, um, uh, uh, it's, there's higher level of, there's more abuse to children of color. There is more abuse of children who are in the system, meaning children who are in the foster care or somehow the state is involved with that child's life. It is higher in those cases, but the truth is every child is susceptible regardless of the fanciest family or the poorest family. It really doesn't matter. What matters is access of that offender or predator to get at that child to offend. And I think that, well, two things. One thing I just want to recognize that there are probably people listening that have had this happen to them. And I know that you have sensitivity to that. And you have said that you're happy to share your story. Sometimes it's hard to hear the details. I think that if you could help us by sharing how this happened to you, maybe not in real detail, I think the point that people will want to hear particularly is how you extricated yourself. Um, So sort of to lay out, how did you from a a good, good home end up being trafficked in the end? Yeah. So what what I would say is um, in order for an offender to offend, right? In order for a child to be sexually abused, three things need to happen. The first one is you need to have someone, male, female, regardless of age, regardless of color, regardless of financial status, regardless of anything, except for one thing. That that person needs to be sexually driven um, for a child. So they need to have the inclination to abuse. And there's a lot of research on this and I'm going to simplify it because I need things to be simple. So usually the person who has this inclination is someone who has been sexually abused themselves and they're passing it down. This is where many times where children, older children are sexually abusing younger children because they are being or have been sexually abused. Sometimes it is just a grown-up who is turned on by kids. And people are indeed, in fact, born with a sexual inclination for children. Like how come some people like um, uh, tall blondes or they like short, dark hair or short? It is a preference. It's just a preference. And these individuals have a preference for children. All right. Second thing, they need a vulnerable child. Yes, there are uh, greater vulnerabilities if they're in the system, if they're in a single parent situation, you know, fill in the blanks, right? And again, I will say all human beings on this planet are vulnerable. Mm. Period. Just, and I have had people argue with me on this point and say, hey, my, this is a man, this is a proud dad. 
um, this was in Maine, in Lincolnville, when the governor had the governor's summit on uh, human trafficking. And I was um, getting ready for a, a bodybuilding competition and I was hitting the gym instead of having breakfast with people. And the manager of the gym was saying, you know, what are all these people doing here? And, and I said, well, this is a, a summit on human trafficking. And, and he just, it was only me in there. So he felt open and comfortable. And he was like, there's no way that happened to my 12 year old daughter. She's a tomboy. She's tough. She plays sports and she's bulletproof in his mind. His daughter was safe and did not need any sort of protection or education because, you know, she loves her dad, him, and it would never happen. And usually um, I'm kinder than I was in the moment. Um, but in the moment I said, so you, there's a huge hill, you know, to the resort. And I said, you mean to tell me if a predator took your daughter aside and said, your dad drives that blue GMC pickup that he always parks by the front door, that if, uh, if you don't do something, a sexual thing with me, that I'm going to cut his brakes. He will die as he's going down the hill uh, unless you do this. I was a little more graphic than that, but you get the idea. And yeah. his jaw just like fell open. And I'm like, under the right circumstances, and these offenders, like they know about jail time. They know this is illegal. They are typically organized. Um, they actually send scouts if somebody's being prosecuted for child abuse or child pornography or any of these things. They actually send scouts into the courtrooms to find out what the laws are being used, what works, what doesn't, and they share the information like they, they've got this down. They know what's at risk. They will either use love or something about love or fear yeah. uh, to coerce that child, you know? So the dad was sort of set back and I'm glad. I had another woman tell me, oh, thank you, Catherine. You've taught me so much. And because of you, we have told our five-year-old that if something doesn't feel good to come and tell mom and dad, and I said, that's great, Lisa, but what if it does feel good? Can't even tell you how many men have disclosed to me that when they were in scouts or they were in some sort of club for little boys, that a camp counselor or someone did something to them sexually and they had a sexual response. They had an orgasm. And for decades, they just felt like their body betrayed them. They questioned their sexuality. I mean, just sent them on a tailspin because nobody told them when they were a little boy <laughs> that that's perfectly natural. That doesn't mean anything. It's just biology, you know? So there's so many people who suffer needlessly. So those are the three things. Uh, uh, somebody who has the inclination, a vulnerable child. And then the thing that really is the thing where we have so much power. We, have, we could stop so much harm with just this one thing and that is access of a grown-up or someone who has a sexual inclination to a child. Like we have so much power and the Boy Scouts have done a great job, understandably so, um, with their training. You, you can't text, and Sunday school teachers, you can't text one child. A grown-up can't have this relationship one-on-one. -on -one. 
There right. has to be a second person there. There's no sleepovers with just, you know, a priest and, a, you know, that none of that happens anymore. Right. You have to keep everybody safe. And when you prevent that access, that opportunity, because we know that the sexual inclination of an individual is not based on anything other than the inclination. So it can be a coach, it can be a priest, it can be a, a leader, it can be, you know, wherever, wherever human beings are. So how did this unfold for you? That it, for me, it was um, uh, an administrator in my school. So I was, my mom and dad were happily married, very much in love. And um, I was the firstborn child on, you know, in the family. Um, so I was just warmly welcomed and wanted and, and received with love. And then my little brother was born shortly after I was, and he was um, very, very sick. I'm 57. So, you know, 50 years ago, 50, you know, a long time ago, the medicine for asthma was not as superior as what we have today. Um, my brother's first 10 Christmases were spent in the um, ICU unit in an oxygen tent. Oh. They, would, um, they would come and tell my mom and dad, he's not going to make it through the night. He did, but boy, early on, um, the medicines would have him hallucinate. He was just a very sick little boy. Right. And what a great opportunity. That's why I told you there's three, there's three things. So the school um, administrators knew what was going on. They knew that, you know, my brother was really sick. Um, every, you know, everybody knew. And the school administrator would come and take me out of class in first grade and bring me into his office and sexually abuse me. I was his uh, special little girl back before, you know, that was a red flag, um, title. And after that, as is common, when a child is sexually abused, I akin it to blood in the ocean with the school of sharks. There is just something that happens. And, and actually, Harvard um, has studied that. I don't know if they come up with the answer, but like, how come? Like, is it a, is it a, you know, pheromone? Like, is it the way the child behaves? Um, you know, they did two women who had been raped. Um, one woman had been raped, one woman hadn't. The odds of the woman who had been raped to be raped again if she was jogging Central Park was like significantly higher than someone who had never been raped before. So for me and many others, the domino began. Um, even though I was a middle income family, even though my mom and dad loved each other, there was that opportunity for access that looked legit to the outside people looking in. Well, the administrator, of course, you know, the family and you know, all that. And then it was the babysitter. And then it was um, an uncle and an aunt and a friend of the family. And um, it, it was um, sort of from a child's perspective, it was just something that happened to me a lot. And, um, it was just the way it was. And uh, now I'm behaving differently in school and I have chickens um, here in Maine. And if I, I have a new baby chicken, Betty, and the other kids, the other chickens don't like Betty. 
and they try to kill her every chance they get because she's different you know i know that's the whole pecking order it's the whole and and it's not pretty right right i just like please and the it triggers my my elementary school years and I'm like I'll protect you Betty so Betty's been in the house like most like I have a, ch a house chicken anyway so um for me I was being um you know bullied and for me bullying and you had talked about some of this stuff in the beginning for me and it's true like all the awful things that have happened to me and I'll I'll tell you bullying was right there man that bullying was awful and I was bullied horribly at school and became promiscuous as I got in um, junior high. Um, the boys were nice to me. The girls, you know, weren't. Uh, they were awful. And the boys were only nice to me for a moment, you know, that sexual moment. And they weren't nice to me the rest of the time. So I started running away. And I ran away from 12 to 17 years old. At first it was, you know, um, a couple of days and um, and I would go to a family um, I didn't I, I wouldn't say any of the kids in school were my friend for the reason I just said but right. they would say you can come and live here whatever and when when a child goes into a home and that home doesn't call your parents or the authorities it's usually because you've just been thrown out of the frying pan into the fire okay. and now it's now it's um, a big brother, an uncle that's living with them, a stepdad or a dad who's waking me up in the middle of the night with a hand over my mouth, dragging me out of where I was sleeping, off of the couch, off of the guest bed or whatever, into a hallway or bathroom, utility room. And who am I going to tell? I'm, I'm, I'm a runaway, you know? That's so, that's, I bet there's people listening thinking, well, how come she didn't tell anybody? Why didn't she go to her parents? Why? And so why? Well, at, in the big, I didn't go to them about the school guy, but I did go to them for um, uh, the, a babysitter. And that babysitter just stopped being my babysitter. Yeah. Um, and then the other people, um, this is in the seventies and there's, there's family dynamics, right? So, um, in the seventies, it was uncool to be a homemaker. So there was a lot of pressure for my mom to go to work. So she's starting to go to work and feel a little independence. Remember that, um, that Charlie commercial, I can yeah. bring home the bacon, fry it up in the pan and never let you forget you're a man. I do remember so, it. That was the 70s, right? It was about women power and, and the women were really um, uh, being, um, you know, they were sort of being bullies themselves. And like, it was, a, it was a shame if you were just a homemaker. So she's leaving and she's trying to make my dad modern and my dad doesn't want to be modern. He's happy <laughs> the way he is. And mom finds another man and leaves, I think I was 13 or something, and my mom and dad get a divorce. Yeah. Um, and then the other dynamic was um, my dad was um, uh, an electrician, and he worked on the Yankee power plant. And from what I was told, there was um, a radiation leak. Dad had some radiation on him, and back then, they 
had him use a special kind of soap, take a shower, put his clothes in a bag, and they told him to go home and wash his contaminated clothes in hot water and he'd be fine. What we, what we didn't know until you know, later was that my dad, um, when I was 17, um, he died of malignant melanoma. Yeah. My dad had cancer from the top of, it's a very slow growing cancer. And so what I have chosen to believe is that what I'm about to tell you next is because my dad was covered, covered from head to toe in cancer. And he died within like three months once, once that he was diagnosed. So my mom and my brother and sister went to live with her new husband and I'm the oldest and I'm gonna, I'm a caretaker kind of person. And I love my dad. I think that my dad is God, you know, at the time when I was a little kid, even though all the bad stuff is happening at school, I'm being sexually abused. Um, my mom and dad are in their own little world. Um, going through a divorce, my dad was absolutely devastated. He was madly in love with my mom. He was a mess. And I say, I'm going to stay and take care of my dad. I believe, again, that, that it was the cancer on his brain, right? So just allow me that. Um, so now I'm sitting on my dad's lap to give him a kiss goodnight. His mother moved in to be support. And I remember my grandmother saying, don't wear your nightgown in front of your dad because your dad is a man. And I thought, no, he's not. He's my dad. You know, I thought that was like the weirdest thing that she could say, like, ew, right? Now I'm sitting on my dad's lap. He has an erection. Um, I'm waking up in my bed. He's in my bedroom staring at me. Um, he's asking me to ask women to have sex with him. Um, it got it got very bad. Um, he's sh he's sharing. Uh, I'm like I'm like laying on the the shag carpet watching Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom or something like a kid does, you know, on the couch, on the floor. And uh, he gives me a magazine. And it's the forum uh, pornography, and it's a story about it's okay to have sex with your dad. Oh God! And so I so I know that I'm not safe at home. So I'm not safe at school. I'm not safe around my peers. Men only like me for a minute, um, and now I'm not safe at at my home. So now when I run away, I don't go to stay with people. I stay in empty forts that I find in the woods. Um, I stay in apartment buildings that I could break into an, an empty apartment building. There were some condos that were under construction. I slept there. I was arrested for shoplifting a towel at the Dillard's department store um, because I wanted to take a bath. So- um, You're how old at this point, Catherine Ian? Four, 14 you know, 14. So at 15, um, I am, and I'm leaving like a ton of stuff out, but at 15, um, I'm not menstruating. I am so malnutritioned that uh, I've stopped menstruating. Um, I, I am 
I am malnutritioned. I'm, I'm starving to death. And I'm in a, I'm in, and I didn't do drugs or alcohol. So that's another myth, you know, that, um, you know, that people who are prostituting themselves are doing it for drugs. I'll tell you that people who are sex trafficked, um, their pimp is giving them drugs as another way of control and also a way of, well, of keeping them. Can you imagine having sex 25 times a day? Like, yeah. Even if you like totally love the person, I mean, really, like, no, never mind a stranger who's disgusting. You know, they could have bad breath, they could have bad body odor, they could be rough, they could be mean, they could be whatever. I remember um, being prostituted. Um, I was trafficked to uh, a fancy hotel. I don't want to say their name in Portland, but it was a fancy hotel in Portland. And um, other girls were supposed to be there. Uh, there were five hunters um, and the other girls didn't show up and the five guys didn't care that it was just me. And I was um, 16. They just, I mean, I'm five feet now. Um, so you imagine just a short little um, 16 year old that they're tossing around and one guy liked to bite and the other guys had to, he was through my skin, you know, and the other guys had to make him stop biting me through. So you never... So I understand why drugs or alcohol would help somebody be able to do that. My constitution, just even today, I just, I can't do Tylenol or Novocaine, or I just, if I could have numbed out at the time, I certainly would have, but I didn't. I remember every awful thing that was ever done, done to me. So well, I'm 15, 16 years old, and I'm in this bad place in Biddeford, Maine on Pike Street, like this awful place um, in this apartment with um, a drug dealer and he's um, doing just awful very bad painful things to me and there's a couple of girls and um, I was in a basement apartment and there was a couple of girls in the like the second uh, floor and from my perspective they were superstars I mean in my mind they have their own apartment they have food they have clothes they looked happy they had each other to talk to they weren't being held prisoner and so um you know I would talk to them and they they fed me macaroni and cheese with peas and tuna fish in it and I could like I felt the food hit my bloodstream and it was just euphoric you know and they were like you could be you could have your own apartment and we have boyfriends and you know they didn't say prostitutions pimp and you're going to be enslaved they really made it sound glamorous and i they had me at you know feeding me you know they had me at feeding me and so i was whisked away um to uh, a um a, a place i don't know if it was in arundel i don't really know where i was but in a very rural place where with other girls and a guy and a house mother. And this woman, the pimp, has this lady watching us. And you know, there's no, you're not allowed to go anywhere, do anything. It's, um, and you are sold. Like you are, you know, if you're, the reason why prostitution and sex trafficking is so lucrative, I mean, it's $150 billion. It's the largest lucrative criminal activity in the country. 
Um, you buy a drug to sell a drug, you have to buy it and transport and sell it. And once that drug is used, it's gone. But you can take a human being, a drug sniffing dog isn't going to notice anything. You're a human being. You can move the human being all over the place, which they do. Um, you can sell that human being over and over and over again, which they do. Um, they actually get more money for the girls in Maine. So when the pimps come in, um, the scouts come in to get new meat, you know, they're looking for girls who aren't covered in tats that have that wholesome look that um, they get more money for them. And they, there's all these different ways that they can um, lure girls into um, being trafficked. For me, it was food. For Ooh. somebody else, it could be fear you're either going to perform and be mine or I'm going to go after your sister, your little sister. Big sisters will usually do anything to protect the little sisters. So when we look at girls who are prostituted, the average age is 12 to 14 and 89% of those 12 to 14 year olds have been sexually abused before. So sexual abuse is, as you mentioned earlier in the precursor, is the precursor in the beginning, is the precursor to not just sex trafficking, but so much, so much. So I think we need to hear how you got out. So the getting out, I'm, gonna, I'm going to give you the cliff note version and I encourage uh, your listeners to go to the site and hear the whole thing because um, I, I love this story so much. Just, you know, sometimes in life, regardless of what's happened in your life, you can look back and they call it connecting the dots. You know, when you look back and you go, wow, at the time I'm so sorry that I didn't get that job or I wasn't accepted into that college or I didn't, you know, meet, I didn't whatever with that guy or whatever. And you look back and you go, boy, if I had this whole other thing wouldn't have happened, you know? And so I look back and, all the time. Yes. Right. And I yes. just look back and I go, wow, God is pretty cool. I mean, I think the whole free will thing is crap, but um, <laughs> I love the good that can ultimately come out of really bad things. So for me, um, the escape was a God job. I had heard from my, I had heard, I don't know if it was the pimp or if it was, I don't know, the, the house mother or somebody, they were talking about somebody down the street where they kept me was very rural. It was like a country mile before the next home. And we, you know, like we didn't talk to the neighbors and I wasn't allowed out of the front door unless I was getting into the car to be sold somewhere. Um, in the backyard was a bunch of um, just land property. And I, so I vaguely remember them talking about somebody in it who had recently gone to AA or something. And it stuck in my mind only because my dad's best friend at the time, my whole life, he was an AA. And he would tell me when things were bad at home, you know, he'd pull me aside and he'd say, you know, the AA program can help anybody. It doesn't matter that you don't drink. The, the steps can help you, you know. And so he was trying to talk to me. And so when she, when they were talking about AA, that just sort of was in my brain. So lots of bad things had happened and I had been choked to unconsciousness. I had been beaten. I had been brutally raped. Um, just awful, 
tied down um, the most horrible things. There was a, um, a warrant for my arrest because back then they didn't have missing person. Um, you know, like they have like the Amber Alert and stuff now. They didn't have that then. So there was a warrant. If you see this person, we want her. And my pimp had brought me to the Biddeford police station, um, walked me in. I went to the, whoever the sergeant or whoever, and he was a bad guy. And okay, you're all right. I can say that I talked to you. And then my pimp walked me out. Yeah. Um, so I'm just not, I am not safe. I want to die. And, um, and I, and seriously, like I really, I really wanted out. If there would have been a button I could have pushed, there would have been no hesitation. Just really like, I'm done with this planet and human beings, human beings are bad. <laughs> I want to go away. Um, and so I went out in the back and with the trees and, and I said, okay, God, if you're real, um, I, and I just sort of spoke out loud and said, I don't know if hell, I don't know if you're real. I don't know if hell is real. And if I commit suicide, do I go someplace worse than what I'm experiencing now? Cause that would suck. Um, <laughs> Right, and I don't know if reincarnation is real. And if reincarnation is real, and you commit suicide, and you got to come back, and like, it's going to be worse. That would suck too. Um, but I don't want to live. So I felt uh, really stuck. Like I was afraid to make a permanent move, um, like death. But I really, really didn't want to live. And so I said. Um, if you're real, help, you know, help. That was it, you know? And I don't really know, part of um, trauma is, I, is timing, I lose um, time. So I don't know if it was a day or two or a week, um, but what happened was I had the bravery. So um, I don't know who out there, maybe their parents spanked them or put the fear of God in them. And they absolutely, even if nobody was looking and they were told, you know, don't touch that water bottle or you're going to be grounded or you're whatever motivated you to absolutely not touch that water bottle. That's sort of a brainwashing. So pimps brainwash you um, with such awful things that I don't even want to speak it. Mm. And I was brainwashed with unspeakable horror that kept me in line. He did not need to be near me for me not to walk out the front door. I was not going to walk out the front door. But after that conversation with God, I walked out the front door. Um, I walked out the front door and then it was, you know, my brain is spinning with, um, okay, if he pulls in the driveway now, cause I felt like he was Satan and incarnate, um, or a demon or something evil and that he could see me even if he wasn't around, like somehow he would magically know where I was and kill me or actually not kill me. It was way worse. So I was like thinking of what I would say if he pulled in 
And then as I walked further down the road, and I didn't want to run because that would draw attention. So I'm just walking down the road. And the first house that I came to on the left, um, I knocked on this door. And when a woman cracked open the door to see who was at the door, I shoved my way in and went inside of her house. And I told her what was going on. And she said, um, uh, instead of calling the police or my parents, again, so you look back and you go, boy, as a grown-up, I would totally call the cops, you know, right? right? I mean, I would like, I, anyway, so uh, she didn't, she, uh, it just so happened, just so happened that she was going to a place called a Crossroads for, for Women in Wyndham, Maine. It's an, an, um, a 30-day rehab place and um, th- where she was going the next day. Um, and so she called and they said, bring this kid with you. It was for um, you know 18-year-old women who were alcoholics. I wasn't 18, I wasn't alcoholic, but I went. And that night I laid underneath her guest bed, um, terrified. And then the next day her husband parked the car, sort of caddy, um, wampus or sideways. And I got on the floorboard of the back seat and went to Wyndham that way. Um, and I did find out later on that the pimp did uh, go out looking for me and somebody was shot and it was, you know, I was merchandise, you know, I was an ATM and he wanted his ATM back. So um, I went to Crossroads for Women and they accepted me. And not only did they let me stay the 30 days, they let me stay 90 days, which was um, just crazy that they, that they did that. But it was a life-saving moment for me. And then um, the next life-saving moment was um, my dad calling Uh, There's a place called Day One for Kids in Maine. It's a one-year program. Um, Your first 30 days, I think. Is that right? Your first 30 days, you're not allowed to go anywhere by yourself. You can't check the mail. You can't, you are attended. And again, I'm giving the cliff note version. And they, the kids have to vote if you get to live there or not. And so the kids were like, well, we'd like you to stay here, but we're afraid you're going to have sex with everybody. And I was like, how about if, you know, you don't rape, sell or torture me and we'll get along fine. So they said yes. And the next day um, I was supposed to check in for the 30 day no contact. And then I'm there for a year. And that evening, and I didn't tell my parents, I didn't tell anybody where I was. I did let people know that I was safe, but that was it. And my dad uh, called and said, I love you. I need you. Please come home. Mm. And he had said that before. And I knew how he needed me and I wasn't in any hurry to go home. Um, But something inside me, um, like an emergency broadcast system feeling like um, emergency, emergency, uh, you have to go home to your dad. You must go home to your dad right now right now, right now, just this inner thing. Oh, and I, yeah. 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 And I went to the night nurse and I said, I don't know what is happening, but I need, and, and my dad's in West Palm beach, Florida, and I'm in Wyndham, Maine. 
with no money and um, a pimp out there somewhere. And uh, so she called staff and the staff said, don't stop her, um, don't help her. And it was the right people just came together and somebody gave me a ride and somebody got me to Massachusetts and my grandmother got me on a plane and I got to be with my uh, dad. And when I arrived in West Palm Beach, the next morning over breakfast, I see my dad's forearm and it looks like somebody stuck a half of a hard boiled egg right above his wrist under the skin. And I said, dad, what is that? And he said, it's cancer. And I said, have you been to a doctor? And he said, no. Um, my dad died three months later wow. um, with me by his side. And one of the single most important moments of my life to this day was being with my dad the night, the hours before my dad died. And when he died, there was a spiritual event that happened that became my spiritual mooring that kept me on the planet for the rest of my life. And I would not be here and I would not be who I am if it wasn't for that spiritual awakening with my dad as he died. Well, what a road to get there. What a road to get to that place. So Catherine Ann, there's so much more to your story that um, I want you to be able to tell to people. And particularly when you, after the 20 years of you recovering, you were you know, recovering from the first 20 years and all the work you did to get to where you needed to be emotionally, physically, everything. Um, and the wonderful job you had, the six figures job, I mean, you were successful in the world of work. And, um, and so then you began to look for a volunteering opportunities, how could you give back? and you went to the jail. And can you just share what happened there? Absolutely, you know, your first 20 years is um, enduring the abuse. And then the next 20 years, as I mentioned, I couldn't um, tolerate drugs or alcohol on the street, nor could I tolerate antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication. And I had acute uh, post-traumatic stress disorder so the 20 years um, after the first 20 years was really about healing and we hear about healing and we, the healing journey and all that. And I will tell you that healing works. It takes a ton of time and nobody tells you that. It just takes a ton of time, it just takes a ton of time. And you know, it had been 12 years since my last panic attack without any medication. It's meditation and healthy living and all this stuff. And then jobs, you know, going from one job to the next job and just learning skills. I never went to high school. So it was following my heart and doing what you have to do. One of my jobs was cleaning houses. Another job was cleaning up poop in people's backyard. Another one was taking care of old people. Another one, you know, like just whatever I could do. And then taking classes and getting certifications and growing. And somebody gave me an opportunity 
I was trying to get into the ministerial program. I did two years of the prerequisites. I'm doing hospice care as a nursing assistant. And then somebody, I just met somebody who was in sales and, and he owned the company. And he's like, I want to give you a shot. And the other owner said, she's white trash. I'm a commission. I'm not going to pay her anything. We're just going to give her commission. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm like the top producing salesperson in the country. Just crazy, just crazy. And I made, you know, $12,000 a month and I bought a house um, in Maine on a little lake and took me like four years to believe that I actually owned it. <laughs> just like walking in going, is this real? Am I going to wake up from this dream? It was so many vision boards of, and meditations of what I wanted my life to be and healing, healing. Oh my gosh, all the different ways of healing and it works when you work it. And then I'm, you know, 47 years old. And um, I want to be able to give back. I'd always given back. I'd always given back, like feeding the homeless or, you know, whatever. But my doctor, Marcel Pickett at the time, um, had said at Women to Women said, you know, I heard that, you know, we have a jail in Maine for kids. And, and I, that was not my thing. Like, I, there's no way I would have gone to jail or done anything with kids. I mean, I didn't get to be a kid. I'm so glad I have raised two successful children, but that was like so hard. <laughs> um, that was not, that was not my, that was not my choice, but I felt like sometimes when things cross our path, it is to teach us something, even if it's to teach us no, even if it's to teach us boundaries, even if it's to get clear on what we don't want, um, there are still, if something crosses my path, I believe it is a divine meeting and there's a gift in there for me. So I decided to go. And all these years that, you know, 20 years of pain, 20 years of, of healing and growing my career, my past was on a need to know basis. I didn't share. I was not open. I was not talking about my past for almost 50 years. If I was dating you, if you were my bestie, I might tell you that I was raped to explain why I would jump if you came up behind me. But I didn't go, you know, I spent a lot, so much time and money in therapy. And I just, and then there was a blackmailer in my head saying, you know, if that boyfriend or your girlfriends really knew all of your stuff, you know, they wouldn't want to have anything to do with you. So even though I had done all the work, there was still that sort of blackmailer narrator in my head. So I, I, but I believed my doctor and I'm like, okay, this might be a divine meeting. And I go to jail and I go through all the background checks and the whole thing. And the first interviews is meeting the volunteer coordinators and them asking you questions. And, and I had made a vow going in with God. And I'm like, if I can be of service, I'm so grateful for my life. Um, uh, I'm just going to just, you know, speak through me and I'm just open. And they asked me questions about my childhood. And I just, for the first time, I just told the truth. I just, I didn't hold anything back. And the reaction was surprising to me. They were crying and I didn't understand why they were crying. And I found out later they were crying because they rarely got to see a happy ending. They rarely got to see, and that's so sad, but you know, over half of the kids don't make it. I know the, I went on to do weekly groups there um, under Beth Peavy, who is um, the manager of the girls unit and the girls that I had, it was such a huge blessing and a gift for me and for them. There's a special 
you can be a therapist and a social worker and all that, but there's something unique about somebody who's already been there. And the girls were able to really bloom and open. And I, we did lose some, some of the couple of the girls overdosed, couple of the girls are success stories that I'm really proud of. But boy, um, happy endings are rare um, with kids and we need to change that. But um, I started doing that. And when I did that, um, I decided that, you know, I, I needed to tell more people in the state of Maine. I'm like, okay, if this is still happening 35 years later, what's going on in Maine? You know, I believe in human beings. I believe in the spirit. And I thought, boy, if, if the people of Maine, the true abolitionists that they are, if they are not like all over this, like white on rice, it's because they don't understand. And if people just explain to the 1.3 million people what's really going on, then they will rally and we will have a huge healing. We will have a huge healing in our state. And that started a seven year, really tenacious um, undertaking of educating as many people as possible. And I mean, I would be rotary all over Maine, I'd, um, law enforcement, all these people, and they would not know what sex trafficking meant. So we would start with that. Like, what is the difference between sex trafficking and prostitution? And is it really going on here in Maine? And, and, it, and it was heartfelt. Let's have a conversation about that. And I'm in my one little one room, little she shed office of love here in Standish, Maine on Spago Lake. And we, it is just amazing what God has been able to do through me and through the people who follow me. Like, it's crazy. Two years ago, I was invited to the White House, not like cute little girl from Maine, let's give her a tour, you know, for her good work. But it was, hey, we want you to come and sit at this table in the Roosevelt Room um, with, you know, 40 other people. And we want to hear what you have to say about sex trafficking and child sexual abuse prevention. Please come um, prepared to share with us what you think is going on and what you think the answers are, because we want to hear that. I really I wanted you to get to this because you had a moment sitting in that Roosevelt room that I want women to hear. Um, and then I think we have to make sure that we say again how people can get a hold of you sure. to make sure that they know and that donations keep coming because in order for you to do all this education, you have got to have money. Right. So, but the moment in, so please. Roosevelt room. Okay, so the Roosevelt Room, this was, and I know that the other women and probably men too have had this, you know, you just sort of feel like a fraud. I don't know. Um, I do. Like, I'm thinking, boy, if you guys are listening to me or if God's using me, we're in trouble, <laughs> right? There are people who are like way more educated, have way better skill set than I do, you know, but I just keep trying to do the best I can and, you know, keep moving forward. So I'm in, so the White House, you know, you get this email from the White House asking you to call them. And, and I'm just like, is this even real? And it said, you know, wh.gov, you know, whitehouse.gov. I'm like, oh my gosh. 
Um, and we had just finished the three-day um, child sexual abuse prevention conference in Portland. Like we had just finished that. I raised $25,000, brought in national speakers. We educated like 300 people, I think, not a ton, but it was my love offering to the state of Maine and I was exhausted. So I was headed up to Eustis when I get this email from the White House and I pull over cause you lose reception up there. And I call the number and it's Giovanni is her name. And she's, you know, very clear, was so kind. And she was like, you need to fill out this stuff and it has to be perfect and blah, blah, blah. And it, you can't make a typo. Like the secret service is gonna like send you um, this info, we have to do a background check before you come to the White House and it has to be perfect because if it's not, you're not gonna be let in. And I'm trying to be cool with her on the phone, but you know, I'm doing one of those football dances, touchdown dances. And I told her, I said, you know, I said, I'm trying to be cool with you, but really like I'm freaking out right now. And she giggled and she was really great. So I fill out the paperwork online. Like I wanted to like turn around and go home and like, but I knew I needed to rest. So I went up to Eustis, spent a couple of days, came back down. I fill out the stuff on the um, computer and I go to the White House and I'm, and my husband comes with me and we're staying in this, you know, the Hay House, beautiful hotel, walking distance to the White House. I'm so excited. And I arrive where I'm supposed to go and they don't want to let me in because I said I was born in 1965, not 64, like total made a mistake. So the, the Giovanni inside and the security outside, massive security, it was Trump, you know, it was a couple of years ago. So just crazy security. And they finally like figure it out and they work together and they there's a guy on the other side of security and he's like grabs my arm and like let's go i was and we get to the roosevelt room which is one door there's oh there's one door in the roosevelt room you open it and there's the oval office so you're like right there in the west wing so the guy like you know we run to the room opens the door lets me in and i am the only person late and the old me would have said, you don't deserve to speak. You disrespected everybody in this room by showing up late. It is inexcusable. You should not sit at the table. You should sit against the wall. I think there's like plus ones. So they had some spaces against the wall, but I saw my name this like, like cardboard thing that says a picture of the White House and my name folded and put in front of the spot right next to a White House employee. And I'm like, okay, I need to sit where they gave me a place to sit. So I sat and the old me would have said, fine, okay, you sit here. You don't deserve to sit here, but okay, you sit there. Don't say a word. You have not earned the right to share anything you uh, let go of that right when you showed up late, you don't deserve to speak. So I sat there, heart is pounding. I'm listening to all these people around the table sharing and no one is sharing what the White House asked. They said, what is the problem? What is the solution? And I'm like, my head is exploding. The fearful side of me, shut up, you don't deserve to speak. And the other side of me saying, you are never going to be in the White House again. 
say, you know, speak woman, speak. And so I just like, I have something to say, you know? And I said, this is a multifaceted problem. And here's what I found in Maine. And I think that we should have John's school. I think we should have services. I think we should have housing. I think that we really need to push education and child sexual abuse prevention. And I go through all my stuff and then I shut up and I try to breathe, you know, and the, and then shortly after that, it was, it was over. And the people, it's like a BNI meeting or a, a commerce meeting. Everybody like is exchanging cards and they're talking. I'm trying to breathe. And the lady beside me said, um, she was a pleasure meeting you. Would you be willing to be on the council? Um, we have, the president has a anti-sex trafficking council. And I said, it, but you have to like jump through hoops. You know, she said, it's not easy, but would you be willing to be on the council? I said, absolutely. But I'll tell you that my heart of heart is around child sexual abuse prevention. If you want me on the trafficking, that's fine. But if there's a space and she said, well, we'll look into that and we'll start the process. And then um, I think I turned into a puddle <laughs> and, then, and then I left. So, and what the education, that, go ahead. What a moment. It was such a, a it was such a moment. And then COVID happened, right? Yeah. So that was, so I was invited back again in January for the 20th anniversary of the uh, Sex Trafficking Victims Protection Act. And there was Barr and Pence and Trump and Ivanka. And I had my picture taken with Ivanka, who was just this beautiful woman who had gone to all these different sex trafficking homes to learn more about it. And my picture taken with her, put that on Facebook. And I was a deluge of horror. People unfriending me, calling me um, worse than a sex trafficker, like all, it was just awful. And then after that, COVID happened. And then the state of Maine uh, asked if I, would, um, if I would do some training with them. And then uh, this last March, this funding came in in January out of nowhere. Like I have no idea even who sent the money. Uh, one was $3,000, one was $2,500. And I worked with the state of Maine Department of Education and Safety. And I hired the uh, leading trainers in the country on child sexual abuse prevention and trafficking. And the state of Maine, totally out of the norm. They had never done multi-training before. They had never used an independent person like me before because it was paid in full through my donations. There was no red tape, agendas, crazy that we've seen for the last four years politically, none of that. You and did we it. We educated 640 state employees, teachers, social workers, and attorneys, uh, 90 prosecuting attorneys. It was a massive success. And I wanna do a ton more of that for our first responders. That's the goal. And you will, and you will keep doing it. I mean, anybody listening to this is thinking this woman, what she says, she's going to do it. So I wanna end with asking you this question. So there are women listening who haven't been through what you've been through, but they can recognize, well, and some who have been through some part of that perhaps, but they can recognize your moments of asking for help, asking for spiritual guidance, the, 
the connecting the dots, the um, getting your courage together, you know, all the things, listening to your intuition to go down to Florida. Um, these are things that have happened to all of us. And I would say to women on the journey. So in particularly, you know, sitting in that Roosevelt room and that old voice, which on the heroine's journey, we call it the threshold guardians, want to keep you back, keep you small yeah. and telling you, you know, oh, you made a mistake. You're no good. And, but you, I have to say, I have something to say. So all of that, what would you, what would you like to end with telling them they're on their heroine's journey? It's probably different from yours, but it's still that journey to be who you really are, your authentic self and to have a voice for whatever it is you need to say, what would you say to them? I would, I would say to write this down. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. We are perfectly imperfect. And so is everyone else. Um, the layers of truth regarding that those two statements are profound. Mm -hmm. As a spiritual being, we get to make choices and those choices change the way we feel, the way that we behave and the way we become a beacon or an attraction to all that is good and abundant in this world. And it doesn't matter if it's not true, okay? It doesn't matter, like um, Brian, Katie, who would you be without your story? You know, or her, the work, the four questions. So when I believe that I am a fraud, a loser, I don't really have anything of value, I'm not as good as I need to be in order to make an impact. When I think that way and I believe that way, how do I behave, how do I feel? Well, you already know how I feel, right? Um, so what if I chose to believe that just as I am, I am capable of helping one? Mm. And if my soul's purpose is here just to help one, is that worthy? Is that valuable? Is that super groovy? Yes. So how do I, how do I feel? How do I behave when I choose to believe that? Very different. It's that way on forgiving. It's that way on expectation of others. It is that way. What am I choosing to believe? How do I feel? How do I behave when I believe that story? What is a more empowering story, true or not, that I can choose to believe that would change the way I emotionally feel because we're electricity and I feel good and then good is drawn to me. That, and it, it doesn't matter if it's true or, or not, I maybe I'm not, I mean, I'm not, I don't have the skills and I don't have, right? Like I can, uh, I did a, that three day uh, child abuse uh, conference. I can't do a dinner party, but somehow the people magically appeared who did have those skills 
And we had a three-day conference. Yeah. Somehow the money came. Like, I don't even know where the money came. The money didn't come before last January, but the money came in January for a conference that I didn't even know was possible, a virtual training for the entire state of Maine in March. And you know, because of COVID, because you had it virtually, you probably got a lot more people there and educating more because it was virtual. Totally. Catherine, Catherine Ann, I need to thank you so very much. And you know, I know that there's so much more to your story and more that you could tell us and more, I mean, we need, I need the education, we all do. So to go to your website, is stoptrafficking.us and to also hit that donate button and make sure that the money keeps coming. So you, I know your plan is to continue and maybe take this to other states and just keep educating and educating. So we're we're working with the state. Well, I'll be meeting with them in um, September and we're going to do another training A lot of our first responders in Maine are traumatized, um, vicarious trauma from what they see, um, Mm -hmm. and they're bringing it home. So we'll be doing a training for first responders on how to help them with their own trauma so that they don't quit and become a part of the problem, but we can keep them educated, empowered, and supported. So that will be another $6,000 worth of training but you know, my husband is kind and I don't have to add money to the family. So every penny of donation goes directly to the training. So it's 100% goes to stoptraffickingus.org. So if there's dentures for a survivor or another training for Maine state employees, every penny of every dollar goes towards that, not overhead, not me. Great. And if someone's listening, and they want to know more in particular from you or to ask you to come speak to their event or whatever, the best way to get an, a hold of you is how? Um, they, can e- they can email me, Catherine at CatherineHelps.org. You okay. can text me. Uh, they can text me at 207-752-4226. Um, you can get on my website, you know, however you want to, whatever you're comfortable with reaching out, we are working on, I've uh, got a team now working on a, on, on the website, a course on sex trafficking in Maine. So hopefully that'll be done in the next month or so. And we'll also be doing a journal for women to help them um, process and, and remember who they are. Yeah. So working okay. on all, all these different little things yep. to be good citizen of Maine. Yeah, well, you are a good citizen of Maine and a good citizen for the heroines on the heroines journey. So I thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here with me today and sharing this not easy story to tell, I'm sure. And we'll be in touch. I'm sure that there'll be a time when it'll be great for you to come back and tell us more about how you're doing with your success story. I will look forward to telling you the success story. (laughs) Well, thank you. And and thank you everyone for listening to us today. Yes. Thank you for listening to the podcast for real life heroines with Susanna Liller. 
We're so glad you've joined us and would love to connect with you outside of the show. To find more about Susanna and how she can assist you in your heroine story, go to SusannaLiller.com forward slash blog or find us on social media and YouTube by searching Susanna Liller. You can also email us directly at Susanna at SusannaLiller.com. We'd love to hear from you. To be encouraged and inspired outside of the show and blog, check out You Are Heroine, a retelling of the hero's journey written by your host and coach, Susanna, available on Amazon. Until the next time, be well, heroine.